Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got a new show for you this week. Got several things I want to catch you up on. Uh, we're going to start off with a simple one, update Firefox. There's been a couple big bugs actually found recently in Firefox, which is always a shame, but it's software. It's going to happen. So as usual, the, the advice is to stay up to date. We'll talk briefly about that. We're also going to talk about a, um, a problem with some Dell software that came pre-installed on, uh, I assume, most modern Dell systems that you're going to definitely want to get updated as well because it's got vulnerabilities. We're going to talk about how Venmo, which is a very, very popular, maybe the most popular payment app uh, that people kind of use to give each other money, uh, often split checks at restaurants or you know send each other a little bit of money, that kind of thing, buy stuff. Uh, very popular, maybe maybe more popular among the younger crowd. Uh, but nevertheless, we're going to talk about how, yet again, the public nature, the default public nature of these transactions is probably not what most people are expecting. Uh, we'll talk about how you deal with that. Uh, got an interesting story about how some soccer fans, or football if you're anywhere outside the U.S., uh, were spied upon by uh, a, a soccer app that was installed. And I think it's just kind of an interesting story just to kind of paint a picture of where we are today with these things. We're going to talk about Facebook launching a brand new cryptocurrency called Libra. And uh, not going to get too much details of that, about that, but we'll kind of give you my impression of that. We're going to talk about how the Customs and Border Patrol lost a whole bunch of photos in an info breach. And finally, we're going to talk about an IoT, an Internet of Things nightmare, and that will lead into our tip of the week. All right, so news for the week. First up, if you are running Firefox, and I hope you are, it's the browser that I recommend most for most people, uh, you're definitely going to make sure that you uh, update. There's a new version, 67.0.4. You're going to want to make sure you're at least to that version or higher. Uh, there were a couple bugs and a couple updates right in a row in Firefox Fun recently that were pretty bad. Um, I don't know how often people will actually trip across this, but... It's uh, basically your browser and your system could be compromised if you go to the wrong websites or uh, hit the wrong link. So you definitely want to make sure you do that. Now, most Firefox browsers should already be set to auto-update. Sometimes they won't update, though, until you've restarted Firefox. I haven't quite figured out what their mechanism is uh, for auto-update. Uh, it seems like they might wait for you to quit Firefox and restart it. Um, if you look in the upper corner of Firefox, there's like this little three lines menu, which is kind of the common new... Uh, icon for settings or, or, or menus or whatever. Sometimes you'll see a little green arrow, up arrow, uh, overlaid on that. that. That would mean that you've got an update. But even if you don't see that, if you go to the Firefox Help or Firefox About, uh, it'll show right there if you have an update and usually give you a button if there is an update. You can just click there to, to restart Firefox and update. Um, you might need to do it a couple times if you haven't updated for a little bit. Like uh, I've got a laptop that um, uh, was on 67.0.1. And uh, I use the laptop fairly frequently, but for some reason it had not updated. So anyway, make sure you're updated. And if you, if you want to go into the Firefox settings and search on update, make sure you have auto update set to on. All right, next up, if you've got a Dell computer, uh, actually, even if you don't, actually, if you've got a Windows PC that uses this, um, this uh, software called PC Doctor, you're going to want to listen up to this. And let me just read uh, from this article from The Next Web. It says, computing giant Dell released a security advisory on Thursday urging consumers to update their laptops and PCs to patch a security vulnerability the company says could have enabled hackers to access sensitive information. The vulnerability, CVE 
12280. And by the way, it's CVE stands for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. This is there's kind of like a central naming process for these bugs that are found. Uh, and you'll notice, as long as I do a little aside here on this, it's CVE-2019, which is the year. So CVE-2019-2019. 12280. I believe they're just incremented. So uh, if that's the case, then we've had over 12,000 vulnerabilities reported just this year. Doesn't really surprise me. Of course, a lot of these are low-level um, things too that aren't quite so severe. They're not all critical. But um, anyway, so back to the article. The, the vulnerability, CVE 2019-12280, was identified in Dell's Support Assistant Application for Business version 2.0 and Home PCs version 3.2.1 and prior. The issue in support assistant could have allowed outsiders to take over a machine and read the stored physical memory, according to cybersecurity firm SafeBreach, which discovered and reported the vulnerability. Since the troubleshooting page, or since the troubleshooting program runs with system-level privileges, the researchers demonstrated it's possible to load insecure code libraries (DLLs) for user-controlled folders specified by the path environment variable. And this goes on and on. Um, it does say that SafePriest did, you know, did not detail if hackers had already exploited this, uh, so we don't know that this is actually being actively exploited. Um, but it's uh, also realized that Dell doesn't make this support assistant. It's actually a software called PC Doctor, uh, and there may be other computers as well uh, that use this uh, software, maybe rebranded with some other name. And basically, you know, it lets them kind of do remote control troubleshooting on your on your computer for him, which is very handy. If you call Dell support and you're having a problem and you give them permission, they can take over your computer and, you know, poke around or at least look while you poke around to, to change different settings and look on, look at different things. It's very handy. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's also, you know, very handy for uh, hackers if they figure out a way to get into your computer without your permission. So uh, there's also been some really big Windows 10 vulnerabilities as well. So, and there was just a recent, uh, every, I think it's the second Tuesday of every month is considered patch Tuesday for Microsoft. And so they you know, put out security updates every, every month, uh, more often if needed, but usually every month and they just had a big one. So generally speaking, if you got a windows machine out there, make sure you are fully up to date. Uh, if you end up update your windows software, you should be good. Next up Venmo. Uh, Venmo is uh, an application, a service, that you usually put on your mobile phone and you can use it to give money back and forth to friends. You can pay you know, vendors with money this way. It's just kind of a way to send money through your phone. Uh, it's very popular. Uh, there are several others out there like that today, but Venmo seems to be one of the most popular, especially with maybe younger, the younger generation. But anyway, if you do happen to use this or you know someone who does, make sure that they've gone into their settings and set all of their transactions to be private by default. Uh, and if they haven't, if that was not the setting, because it's not the default, unfortunately, this is Venmo's social aspect. They want people to see what you're spending money on, you know, kind of like Facebook or Twitter for your financial stuff, which I don't know why anybody would want to make that public by default. It's just, it's not a social thing, but it is. That's the, that's the setting. And we talked with EFF a while back with their program called Fix It Already, and this is one of their nine issues they have with big tech companies that they just just need to fix it already because it's just a horrible horrible thing and venmo's thing was making your stuff public by default so if you have the app go into uh, your settings go into privacy there's a there's a place there where you can select private i would even do friends i would just do 100 percent private and uh obviously if you've used this already and that was not your setting when you, when you first installed it if you didn't make this change immediately 
then some, then all your current transaction, all your past transactions at this point are public. So if you look down a little further, there's a thing called past transactions and you can go change all those to private. Now, the, the reason why this is a big deal is there have been researchers that have shown that they could go and just go through and find all your transactions and publish them. This latest round was, um, a researcher who went and just, there's a, there's an API, an application programming interface that allows anybody to go see what people have spent money on it. Just a, it's a web query. And this guy just went and did a bunch of web queries and for a six month period found 7 million transactions that were still public. Uh, there was another kind of an infamous story a while back where uh, similar researchers had done this and found 200 million public transactions and actually set up a Twitter bot because I guess when you, honestly, I don't use it, but when you use it, you can, I guess, put a note on it. Like, you know, like a, kind of like you do on a check right in the memo section, you can say what it's for, I guess. And, uh, (laughs) he had a, he had a bot set up to monitor all these transactions and automatically tweet to this account every time somebody used Venmo to pay for drugs. (laughs) So I can only guess that somebody, not only were they dumb enough to use Venmo to, to, to pay off their drug dealer, but they actually put a little memo or something in, in, on the on the transaction saying, you know, bought weed or, 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 or whatever. So anyway, uh, we're just a little bit too public with our stuff. And this should not be public by default. So anyway, if you ha- you or somebody you know uses Venmo, just have them make sure they go to their settings and set this setting to private and make sure they also go take the time to make all their past transactions uh, private as well. All right, now this next one is another privacy nightmare, and it's it really shouldn't surprise us that this is where we are now. This is this kind of thing happens. This is not an outlier. This There are apps that do this sort of thing. So this is from an article in Gizmodo. And it talks about this this app, La Liga, which um, I don't know it means the league. Maybe I'm <laughs> just guessing. I don't speak Spanish, uh, but it's for soccer fans, football fans in Europe, and it's a very popular app. And this app was caught spying through through the app using the, the microphone on these people's devices, ostensibly to find illegal broadcasts of their games. So let me read this article from Gizmodo. Spain's data protection agency has fined La Liga, the nation's top professional soccer league, 250,000 euros, which is about $283,000 currently, for using the league's phone app to spy on its fans. With millions of downloads, the app was reported being used to surveil bars in an effort to catch establishments playing matches on television without a license. The La Liga app provides users with schedules, player rankings, statistics, and league news. It also knows when they're watching games and where. According to Spanish newspaper El Pais, the league told authorities that when its apps detected users were in bars, the apps would record audio through phone microphones. The apps would then use the recording to to determine if the user was watching a soccer game using technology that's similar to the Shazam app. If you're not familiar with the Shazam app, it's an app that you can use to try to identify a song that's playing. It just listens to the song and then tells you what song it is, which is really kind of nice. Anyway, if a game was playing in the vicinity, officials would then be able to determine if that bar location had a license to play the game. So not only was the app spying on fans, but it was also turning those fans into unwitting narcs. All right, so (laughs) let's recap. So there's a, 
you know, soccer obviously is hugely popular worldwide, especially in Europe. And in Spain, there's a league that has an official app. And when you download that app, you can find the schedules for all your favorite teams, get the scores, all that kind of great stuff that you would expect from a soccer app. But also, and it was actually buried in the terms of service. If you read the terms of service, it actually said that you give it permission to record you. Actually, let me, you know what? Let me, let me read that from the terms of service. It says, if you accept the specific and optional box enabled for this purpose, you consent to the access and use of your mobile device's microphone and geopositioning functionalities so that La Liga knows from which locations football is being streamed and thus detect any fraudulent behavior by unauthorized establishments. Activation of both the microphone and geopositioning of your mobile device will require your prior acceptance of our pop-up window. So again, I'm, I'll have to read this again. I th- it's an opt-out setting. So by default, this was turned on. And when you install that app and it pops up the thing saying, we'd like permission to use your microphone in your location, you know, and you say accept, you are basically saying, please let me be a narc for you to help you find bars that are illegally showing soccer games. So, and again, I, I like I said at the beginning, this is this sounds crazy. This sounds kind of too bad to be true apocryphal would be would be the the 25 cent word for that but this is happening and it's not just it's not just with phone apps your smart tv is actually if you've plugged in your smart tv to the network because you don't have to right if you don't want to use any of the built-in apps if you just want to use a tv as a tv you don't have to connect it to your network but if you do there's software that comes pre-installed on a lot of different televisions now that pay attention to what you watch and report back on what you're doing. This is sort of like a Nielsen thing, but it's more than that. It's also what commercials do you watch? When do you change the channel? Um, And it can do it in all sorts of weird ways. Like it can actually scan the pixels on your screen, kind of like taking a screenshot of your TV and then comparing that to known television shows or commercials or whatever to figure out what it is you're watching without really having access to, you know, your cable guide or whatever. Because you must wonder, how does it know what you're watching? It's actually looking at it's actually looking at your television screen to determine what you're watching, um, and there are other crazy things like this too uh, that I've talked about in the show that just seem amazing, but it's happening and we're allowing it and by, it's by default in a lot of cases. So, you know, beware, buyer beware. Okay, let's move on. Next up, Facebook, along with a lot of other companies, big name companies, including Visa and Mastercard and some others have come out with their own cryptocurrency. And we've talked about cryptocurrency before. This is like Bitcoin. That's the most famous one. Ethereum, Monero, there's there's many of them out there now. But cryptocurrency is a digital well, currency that is not fiat currency, basically based on scarcity and trading at whatever value people decide to give it. And because it can't be created willy-nilly, that makes sure that the value can't be undermined by mass producing these coins. And it's all done with crypto math and it's set up such that, and it's really quite clever set up so that you it's harder and harder over time to make more of these coins, uh, ensuring the coins scarcity. The other thing that is big on cryptocurrency is this thing called blockchain or a distributed ledger system, which basically it's not controlled by any central bank or authority or country or, or, or uh, federal reserve, or any of those kind of things. It's its own standalone system that works by 
basically sharing a copy of every transaction ever made with every coin or every fraction of a coin worldwide. And by majority vote, everybody agrees that these transactions are legit and valid. And then everyone has basically a copy of the worldwide ledger of all coins made and traded and who owns them uh, and, and all the transactions made. And the transactions are all against some sort of a ID or a wallet ID, and you can change that all all you want. So it's some people think it's anonymous. It's not 100% anonymous. In fact, <laughs> I had uh, Professor Weaver on the show a while back, and he literally laughed. At my, well, not literally laughed at my face because it was he was remote, but he laughed through the microphone at my face uh, when you know when I posed the question, "Is this anonymous?" Because it uh, it's really not. But it's much closer than credit card transactions, for example, or debit card transactions, and not quite as good as cash, but then, you know, you can't do cash remotely. So anyway, Facebook has gotten into the game and they're creating this new cryptocurrency that they're calling Libra. Um, and the, uh, this one actually will be, it's called a stable cryptocurrency and it will somehow be backed by real funds somehow. So it's kind of a hybrid thing between Bitcoin and maybe a fiat currency uh, from a, from a country. Uh, there's a lot more to be learned about this, but all I want to say is this. I don't trust Facebook at all, which should be no surprise to anybody who listens to this show. And if there are any privacy or anonymity aspects, aspects to a cryptocurrency, I would assume that that, that would not be the case for Libra. For, for example, so let's say I do have a digital coin wallet and I've got some Libra coin and I want to spend that money. Well, if I go to Facebook Messenger to send money to somebody else, Facebook now knows who I am and now can associate that transaction, that ID and both wallet IDs uh, for the giver and the receiver with the actual names of the people. Privacy lost and then anonymity gone. Uh, and you can bet that they are going to share that with third parties. So... While I think Facebook is trying to build this as a, a handy anonymous payment system that doesn't have all the overhead that like a MasterCard transaction would, a 2 or 3% hit on every uh, transaction, it you just have to assume it's not private. So we have a lot more to learn about this. I'm sure there'll be a lot more article, articles written about it. But just keep that in mind as you're reading these breathless articles about Facebook and all these other companies getting behind some sort of a global new cryptocurrency, uh, that privacy is just probably not part of the equation, despite what their claims may be. I will say, and I'd, I would love to do a whole show on this at some point, You might, if you really want to do that, you might want to look at Apple Pay. Apple Pay and Apple Cash and the new Apple Card, which should be coming out this summer. Uh, Apple is trying to do some payment systems as well, but they are bending over backwards to try to keep privacy at the forefront. And uh, to the point where, you know, when you go to use your, your Apple Pay at a store or whatever, the, the, the vendor actually gets no information about you whatsoever. It's all done through you know, one-time use numbers that can't be associated with anybody. They've really gone to great lengths to try to keep this stuff private and to guard your private information and, and stop you from and all your purchases from, from being tracked. So um, if you want to get into something like that, check out Apple Pay because it's starting to be accepted more and more. And it's one of those kind of critical mass things where the more people use it, the, the, the more it will be used. So, uh, so uh, check that out if you're interested in doing any of those kind of payment systems that, uh, that might be worth looking at. There's an article that I want to read here quickly from The Hill about um, Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, let me just read the article and then we'll talk about it. 
Photos of U.S. travelers and license plate images were recently stolen from a database maintained by Customs and Border Protection, CBP, the agency confirmed on Monday. In a statement to The Hill, a CBP spokesperson said it learned on May 21st that a subcontractor had transferred copies of license plate images and traveler images collected by CBP to the subcontractor's company's network. The subcontractor's network was subsequently compromised by a malicious cyber attack, the spokesman said. Spokesman added that the subcontractor had transferred the photos to its own network, quote, in violation of CBP policies and without CBP's authorization or knowledge, unquote. The Federal Law Enforcement Agency maintains an expansive photo database that includes photos of people traveling into and out of the country. CBP, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, was not named, has not named the subcontractor, subcontractor involved in the data breach. Quote, as of today, none of the image data has been identified on the dark web or Internet, the border agency said in a statement. CBP has alerted members of Congress and is working closely with other law enforcement agencies and cybersecurity entities and its own Office of Professional Responsibility to actively investigate the incident, unquote. A CBP official said initial reports indicate the breach involved images of fewer than 100,000 people and were taken of travelers and vehicles entering and exiting the U.S., through a few specific lanes at a single port of entry over one and a half months. No identifying information was included with the images, and no passport or other travel document photos were compromised. No images of airline passengers were involved, the official said. Okay, so as breaches go, this obviously could have been a lot worse. But the takeaway here is a couple things. First of all, any data that you collect is subject to being stolen. So one of the key principles with privacy is data minimization. That is, don't collect any more than is absolutely necessary. And if you don't need it, don't collect it. If you don't, if you need it only for a certain amount of time, delete it when you're done. Uh, because information wants to be free. Data, data wants to break free. It will find a way. If you store this stuff and you store it insecurely or you store it in some place where one of your partners can get a hold of it without actually having to get permissions first, it will get out. Uh, and these sorts of things are going to happen. We just do not understand data privacy yet in this country. And we really have no consequences for these sorts of screw-ups. So, you know, we're going to need to address this in multiple ways. Um, But one of them certainly is to realize that it's not harmless to collect this information. You can't just say, well, we trust ourselves and we'll we'll be good stewards of this information. And, and again, also in this case, since it's a government agency, I'm sure they didn't ask for anybody's permission to do this. They just did it. So you didn't have a say in the matter. We have really got to be very careful with images, facial recognition, biometrics, license plate readers, all of these things that, that, that can identify us. We have to be very careful about this information, only collect what is absolutely necessary. And, and honestly, I think we kind of need a moratorium on some of these things until we can really figure out how best to take care of this data and to minimize what we collect and make sure that the public is aware of what we're doing and has time to give feedback. Uh, Cause otherwise we're really racing toward, uh, this was a very small incident, but it could have been so much worse. So anyway, I just want to call your attention to it. All right. Last up, I want to talk about um, a rather severe and easy to exploit vulnerability found in Linux operating systems. Now, if you think, ah, oh, Linux, I don't, I don't even know what that is. I don't have a Linux system. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. Almost every device in your house that is some sort of a smart device, if it's, other than probably your phone, unless it's Android, in which case it is loosely Linux-based, but it's its own operating system. It's Android. Uh, so unless it's a smartphone or your computer, 
uh, your TV, your DVR, your webcams, your thermostats, your smart light bulbs, your smart toaster, probably your, your Echo speakers, your smart speakers. These devices run Linux. Why? Linux is a very powerful, very flexible, very cheap. It's free. <laughs> uh, it's Linux was is an open source based operating system, which is extremely popular with these cheap IoT devices, Internet of Things devices. So you definitely have Linux running somewhere in your house unless you are totally off the grid and have no smart devices, which, you know, I suppose that's possible. But if you're listening to this podcast, probably not. So I'm not even going to get into the technical aspects of this too much. Uh, I'm not going to read an article or anything, but basically what the deal is with this particular vulnerability is that if it's on a network and that network is exposed to the broader internet, which is a big if because most of the devices in your home are sitting on your home network, your home, you know, you've got a home Wi-Fi router, probably um, perhaps one that came from your internet service provider or one that you bought yourself and built into that router is a firewall. And that firewall keeps any outside sources from poking into your network without your permission. It's kind of like a one-way data valve. Uh, data can go out and come back, but it can't get in without being first invited. So that one feature protects so many of our devices. Uh, however, um, sometimes there are things that will automatically poke holes in your firewall, like a universal plug-and-play. Um, sometimes routers have some ports open, um, which, which they shouldn't, or sometimes these devices get out in the net and then they, as long as they're communicating with something and it's not, if it's not secure, uh, a bad guy can kind of jump into the conversation and corrupt the, the, the networking traffic going to that device. So there's, there's still, even with a router and a firewall, there's still potentially ways that these devices can be hacked or rather reached from the internet and then potentially hacked. So in this case, there is a networking flaw, um, that, basically allows any Linux system to be brought to its knees immediately with a single bad packet. Uh, and while it currently doesn't show any way for those devices to be compromised, as in hacked and then taken over and forced to do their bidding, nevertheless, these packets can completely freeze or lock up these Linux systems until they're rebooted, probably. So this would be prime for what we call a denial service attack, which is not so much to corrupt a device and force it to, to do our bidding and be part of a botnet, but I can make it so that it's unusable. And here's the issue. Um, so many of our Internet of Things devices are cheap. And one of the easiest things to not do to save money is security, unfortunately. And again, in the United States, at least, where there's actually California has recently passed a bill or tried to pass a bill that enforced some basic, basic fundamental security procedures for Internet of Things devices, um, which hopefully will um, be a boon to all of us. Because if you want to sell in California, you're not going to make a different product to sell in Indiana. <laughs> so, you know, if you make it secure enough for California, it'll make it secure enough for everybody. So that may that may help out here. But. The problem with a lot of these devices, because they're so cheap, is they are not upgradable. This this bug, this flaw, this vulnerability in Linux systems has been around for years, decades, I believe. It's that Linux is that old, um, and this vulnerability is very widespread. And if these devices can't be updated, they'll be vulnerable forever. So that leads to our tip of the week. Let's talk about some some very basic. Internet of Things hygiene um, that we all should be doing. And I've covered this before, but it's worth covering again, especially in light of articles like this. 
First and foremost, don't connect devices to the internet that don't need it. I've got every smart, every TV I have in my house and I've got three of them are smart TVs because you can't, I don't think you can buy a a dumb TV anymore. (laughs) Every TV connects to the internet. However, none of my televisions are connected to the internet. Okay. I take it back. One of them is, um, (laughs) but the other two are not. And the reason I didn't is because I don't use any of the smart features of that tele- of the television. Um, and so, you know, like they'll come with a built-in Netflix app or a built-in Amazon Prime app or maybe uh, some, built, some built-in games uh, or whatever. I don't use any of those. Um, not that I don't use Netflix, I but I have Netflix on a separate box entirely. I have an Apple TV and a Fire TV, and that's where I use Netflix. So since I'm not using the Netflix or any of the smart capabilities of my TV, I just never connect it to the Internet. Um, so step one, if you don't, if you've got a smart device, like a smart TV, then, but you're not using the smart features, then just don't connect it to the internet. You don't have to do that. All right. Now, if you are going to connect them to the internet, you've got another choice. Almost every modern Wi-Fi router, probably including the ones that come from your internet service provider, if that's, if you're using the one that they gave you has the capability to create a guest network. Um, so I treat the guest network as sort of a, a quarantine zone. Uh, I put anything I don't trust on my guest network, including my guests. Um, you know, they may bring devices into your home uh, that are compromised and they may not know it. And as soon as it's like a vampire, once you, <laughs> once you invite them into your home, they have power. Uh, so for your guests, that's why it's called guest network. And for any internet of things type devices that you do not trust, put them on your guest network. So if nothing else, these devices can't, get to your computers and your smartphones and your other maybe prime targets for, for hacking, uh, because they can only get to, they can, like, if you're on the guest network, you can't see or can't talk to directly devices that are on your regular home network. And so it's, it's a quarantine system. So they can still get to the internet. They can still talk to their, you know, they can still talk to Amazon. If it's an echo product, they can still talk to, you know, Apple, if it's a, you know, it's a smart speaker or whatever, uh, they can still talk to the internet, which is generally speaking all they need to do. Uh, if it's a webcam, you know, the, a lot of these things are now backed by cloud services. So they're actually sending all their data to the cloud anyway. Um, and you can retrieve it from the cloud, uh, you know, from anywhere on the planet, not just from your home network. So it's really kind of going out and coming back. Uh, now, there are some smart devices that do require you to be on the same network uh, for them to work. Uh, uh, in that case, you know, you might have to evaluate on a one-on-one basis, which of those you might want to let into your trusted home network. Um, but generally speaking, most of these devices can just go on your guest network and they'll be just fine. So anyway, you can kind of segregate these devices, these untrusted devices, and by putting them on your guest network. All right, next up, if your device is smart enough to have a login page, like your home router does, uh, if you can actually go and like administer the device or configure the device by going to its web page. Uh, then make sure that that device has got a good password set for that administrative interface. Uh, they'll usually come with either no password or a default password. And unfortunately, all the bad guys know those passwords too. So if they were able to get on your network somehow, you know, maybe walk into your house with a, com- you know, it's, uh, so they compromise somebody's laptop and that person comes into your house and gets on your network, they will scan for devices on the network that have default passwords and then try to take them over. I know it sounds like spy movie stuff, but <laughs> this is all automated. There's not, there's no human behind this. Some human wrote this software and it's sitting out there and it just automatically does this whenever it can. It's op- it's opportunistic. So it's, it's, it's not some, some guy who's actually 
you know, watching for stuff in your house and trying to, you know, attack your devices in live real time while it's not that it's somebody who's written some software and just lets it go. And it like a virus, it's a virus usually, or a malware that gets installed on multiple devices and kind of spreads around. And eventually when one of those devices gets into a, a place where it can do some damage, it does automatically. So Anyway, back to the original point for this is if you if this device is smart enough to have a, a web configuration page, make sure that that configuration page has got a good, strong administrator password set. Um, it probably comes with a default, so you have to change it. And of course, you can use your password manager to store it so you don't have to remember it. And it'll be some crazy password that nobody will ever guess. And finally, as a last ditch resort, and we're going to we're going to be getting to this point. We're actually we're already at this point. If you've got older smart devices, older devices that somehow connect to the Internet, and they are not upgradable. If you can't like log into their admin page and check for software updates and, and download them manually, even if necessary, to make sure their software is up to date, it's probably time to be thinking about replacing them. I mean, there's really nothing you can do. If these things like this, this new vulnerability I just talked about, if you don't fix it, this thing is going to be vulnerable forever. So, you know, um, not all devices are secure today, but they're probably the newer devices are probably more secure than the older devices. So it's something to consider if you've got an older device, um, an older Internet of Things type smart device, and you can't upgrade the software on that device. Uh, you might want to think about replacing it with something newer that you, where you can uh, update the software and keep it up to date to make sure that it's got all the latest security fixes. And one more tip, I guess, before we go, uh, which I've said before, is make sure that you register these devices with the manufacturers. Uh, I know that it's just another spam avenue. It's just another way to get a bunch of junk mail from somebody. But, you know, pick an email account you don't care about uh, and register for these devices. Because when the manufacturers find out that there are flaws in their devices, they will hopefully email all registered users to let you know. And so that would be that's, that's probably one of the only ways you're going to find out that there's been some sort of vulnerability found in the device that you own is to register that device. And if you're lucky, they'll send you an email and they'll tell you how to upgrade the software or what you can do to mitigate the, uh, the circumstances. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in. I've got a great interview waiting for you next week with John Graham Cumming uh, from Cloudflare. Uh, he's the CTO of Cloudflare. Uh, this will be his fourth appearance. That'll be a record. I think that'll be the most appearances by any single person on our show. So he's definitely a friend of the show. Uh, he's always really fun to talk to. And they just got done having their annual crypto week where they came out with some other great tools uh, for uh, mostly for industry. Uh, a lot of them are very highly technical, but they're all really good things. Uh, they're doing some really great work. And so we're going to talk to him about um, a VPN service they've got coming out very soon called Warp. Uh, that I hope is every bit as good as uh, their other products because it's um, VPNs, especially on mobile devices, are very flaky and hard to use. Uh, I'm really hoping that they're going to solve all those problems and they're going to knock, knock this one out of the park. So we're going to talk a little bit about VPNs next week and mobile VPNs in particular and uh, the product they have coming out called Warp. I've got all, all sorts of other interviews actually in the hopper coming up. So we've got some great stuff coming up. So be sure to tune in for those. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. That way you don't make sure you don't miss anything. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please go give it a nice five-star rating uh, on Apple. That's where most people get their stuff. So that's where most people will see it. So if you get a chance, I would really love to get some nice reviews out there. I appreciate it for those of you that have already done so. Same goes for the book. If you have the copy of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, uh, I'd love to get an Amazon review for you uh, for the book. If you don't have the book, you might want to check it out. It's got over 150 different tips 
most of them free, most of them not too difficult. Uh, some of them will take a little bit of time uh, to protect yourself, uh, your privacy and your cybersecurity, both at home, uh, on your mobile devices, uh, friends and family. It's it, pictures, step-by-step -step instructions. It's all there. It's, it's very straightforward. It's, it's geared toward non-technical people. Check that out as well. If you want more technical stuff and more up-to-date stuff, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is FirewallDragons on Twitter. You can check me out there. I'm also on Mastodon. What's Mastodon? Well, you know, so Mastodon is sort of uh, the private open source answer to Twitter. And, of course, there's very few people on it because most people don't uh, haven't heard of it. But, you know, hey, if you're looking for something different, you might want to check out Mastodon as well. Uh, just to play around with some, some other technology and show some support for services that are out there trying to protect your privacy. Um, so it's one of those things that's a critical mass thing. It's, I, I'm still on Twitter. It's, it's kind of one of my last social media devices because that's, that's where the people are. Unfortunately, um, I'm of course totally off Facebook as all of you know, but, um, Twitter still on Twitter, unfortunately, um, hopefully Mastodon or something like it will take off and we can start using more privacy focused social media services. But until then you can find me on Twitter at firewall dragons. All right, that'll wrap up our show. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I very much appreciate it. Uh, tell your friends and family. Let's get some more people out there listening as well. And uh, so that'll do it. I'll see you again next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. And until then, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your garbage down.